Well, good evening. It's a, it really is a joy and a privilege to once again be able to bring the Word of God to you tonight. And I, I was looking at the, the date for this sermon this morning as I was putting the, the outline together and finishing it up, and I realized I was preaching on December 15th, and I can't believe it's December 15th already. And I, I thought I would um, just take a look and see, like, and I've been progressing in my seminary. I finished the first semester now, and I did a calculation, and now I've, I've finished 17% of my seminary already. And I'm like, I feel like I just started. I feel like we just got here. It's crazy how fast everything is going. But uh, I, I'm very glad to be able to bring the Word of God to you tonight. And our plan tonight is to finish our series in the book of Jude. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Jude. Our text for this evening is going to be verses 17 through 25 of Jude. And as you're turning there, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Jude 17 through 25. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his, whole, of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for inspiring your servant Jude to write this epistle and for preserving it throughout history so that we could read it and that your spirit could work through it to change us. Lord, I pray that you would do just that this evening. I pray your word would be spoken in truth and that you would accomplish what you want to do through it by the power of your spirit. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was uh, going into my first year of college, I was, of course, as any first-year student, new on the college campus, and I didn't really know anybody. I didn't know very many people. Uh, pretty standard for a college freshman, I think. And as I got onto this campus and began to meet people, I ran into someone who I thought we were going to be kindred spirits. I thought we were going to be, you know, the best of friends. This guy that I met was a raging Calvinist. And so I was happy because I'm like, all right, someone shares the Reformed faith. This is awesome. I found a kindred spirit. And so we talked all about Calvin and talked about Reformed theology and all that kind of thing. He was into it. I was into it. We were going to be the best of friends. But uh, it didn't turn out that way because as the months continued. As the semesters wore on, what it came, it came to my knowledge that he was changing 
and some of his theological persuasions. And he began to you know, question the Reformed faith, eventually rejected the Reformed faith. And not only did he begin to question reformed, the Reformed understanding of Scripture, but he actually began to question the inerrancy of Scripture. He began to lean very heavily in the liberal theological circles. He began to say things like, well, you know, the Scripture contains God's Word, but it is not actually God's Word. There's simply some good things that it has to say, but you can't really trust all of it. And I really began to get worried about him when he began to say things like, I don't believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone anymore. He began to say, I believe in the doctrine of justification by faithfulness, namely faithfulness to God, which is essentially the same as justification by works. And I began to really wrestle. I remember talking to Jordan about this, wrestling with, do I, I mean, at this point, do I even call him a Christian anymore? Because he's, he's not just, you know, questioning minor doctrines or, I mean, that wasn't the point. He was rejecting the gospel. That's where he was getting to. And I really struggled with that. It was hard for me to see someone who seemed so solid at first drift into someone I didn't even recognize compared to who I first met. And I had another, uh, another friend, although it's not really a friend, more of a Sunday school teacher... She was the director of our children's ministry at my home church. And everyone looked up to her. She was like the ideal Christian woman. She worked hard. She wrote the scripts for all of our Christmas programs. She taught all of us. She taught me. She taught us scripture and you know, the Bible lessons and so on. I mean, everyone thought she was awesome. Her husband was an elder in the church. She had a wonderful family, two kids. I mean, everything seemed awesome about her. She seemed like the most Christian woman you could really think of. That is until, and it was just a few years ago that it came out that she was having an affair with someone at work, and it went on for months without anyone ever finding out about it, and it wasn't just an emotional affair, it was a physical affair. And when she was confronted by the church and confronted by the leadership and confronted by her friends, her very words were, you know, I have spent my entire life obeying God. Now it's time to do something for me. I deserve this. Again, another example. Someone who seems so solid at the front end. When I first met them, I first knew them, they seemed so solid on the outside. And yet, as time wore on, it seems, I don't know their hearts. Maybe they're in a period of stumbling. But it seems that they went out from us because they were not of us. And I, in my growing up and maturing in Christianity during you know, seeing the, the Sunday school teacher... Um, come out as an unbeliever and she's unrepentant to this day and seeing my friend to drift so far away from the biblical truth I have taken these life experiences as significant warnings about the importance of perseverance about the importance of God's work of preserving us in the faith and it's that kind of thing that Jude is dealing with in our passage tonight right? I've entitled this message Persevere to the End uh, and that's because in this passage we see Jude beginning to, to wrap up his epistle. And if you remember from all, of our, uh, all the sermons that I've given on Jude up to this point, really the whole epistle can be summed up as Jude calling Christians to persevere in the faith. Right? Persevere against the opposition of false teachers and other threats. 
And Jude here in this, in, the, in this passage that we're dealing with is going to call us to persevere. And he's going to do that in essentially three ways. Right? Firstly, what he's going to do is he's going to explain that we shouldn't be surprised about false teaching and opposition in this world to the gospel. Right? He's, that's the first thing. Second thing, he's going to call us to persevere. And thirdly, he's going to call us to evangelism. All right. Predictions of ungodly people, a call to persevere, and a call to evangelism. That's how Jude ends this epistle, and that's how we're going to end this series tonight. And so, starting then at verse 17, as we begin to make our way through the text, here's what he says. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now here Jude, I think, could be referring to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to read for you just a couple verses from 2 Peter, just to give you a flavor of what the Apostle Peter says about this kind of thing. Here's Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 4. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You can see Peter's adding some stuff there, but the substance of what he's saying is the same. He's like, listen... Remember the predictions of the apostles. They said this, in the last days, scoffers are going to come. Now here, scoffers, you know, people that make fun of the faith, but it can include false teachers too. And so what Jude is saying here is he's saying, listen, all of these false teachers that I've been warning you about, all the way through this epistle, which we've been talking about for all the three sermons that I preached before this, all those false teachers, you should not be surprised that they are here. Because the apostles predicted that in the last time, these people would come. And you see what Judah is implying here. He's, he's implying to his readers, they're in the last time. And it's because they're in the last time that these false teachers have come. I think sometimes, I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, at least growing up, I tended to think of the last time, or the latter days, or however we want to phrase it. I, you, I tended to think about that idea as something that's in the future. It's not yet. Maybe that's you, I don't know. But that's how I tended to think about it. Something that's in the future. The latter days are something that's going to happen eventually, but not yet. But, but biblically, and in the New Testament particularly, the last days are right now. Because the last days were inaugurated by the coming of Jesus Christ. So we are in the last days. We are in the final period of redemptive history. And all throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, we have constant predictions and prophecies of people who are going to come in these latter days that are going to do bad things. And particularly, they're going to teach wrong doctrine and they're going to draw people away from the true church. And that's what Jude is telling his readers here. He's saying, listen, don't be surprised that these false teachers are here. They're in your midst. They have crept in among you. They're perverting the gospel into sensuality, as we read in um, verse, I think it's verse 4 or 5. Don't be surprised they're here. The apostles predicted this. And, he, and then Jude goes on here to give a little bit of a description of these people, just to sort of remind his readers who they are so they can identify them. 
Um, they said to you in the last time, this is verse 18, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. They cause divisions. Now, just FYI, not all church divisions are bad. All right? Sometimes church divisions are not, not necessarily congregational, but just church in big picture. Sometimes divisions between Christians are important and indeed necessary. Right? And for example, uh, take the Reformation in the 16th century. Right? Would we want to say that, that um, Luther and Calvin and the rest of the reformers, the Protestants, dividing from the Catholics was a bad thing? No, that, that was a good thing in the sense that it was a, a defense of the gospel and that they must separate from, false, from the false church. Right? That's a good division where it's a legitimately... A legitimate need to separate from a false church or to separate from a church that's so destructive to the purity of the gospel that it's at stake. Right? But what Jude has in mind here is not good divisions, right? But what he has in mind implicitly is bad divisions. And a bad division is when a, a false teacher comes in to a good church and corrupts the, the doctrine or comes in and teaches people false doctrines so that people are divided from the true church. See that? So the false teacher infiltrates a true body of believers and then divides from that by poisoning it, by being a parasite. That's a bad division. That's the kind of division that Jude's talking about here. That's the whole reason why he's writing this epistle. Right? He's trying to tell these people, these false teachers are in your midst. They're going to create bad divisions. You've got to watch out for this. These are the kinds of people that are among you. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit. And this, you could say, is really the cause of why. Of why they are causing divisions. Because their teaching is devoid of the Spirit. And naturally, naturally, if you are devoid of the Spirit, you are not going to teach right doctrine. It's certainly not going to be for the right end. It's not going to be to the glory of God. But if you don't have the Spirit, you're going to be teaching false doctrine. And Paul, um, in the book of Romans, I can't remember exactly where it is off the top of my head, but Paul in Romans says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so what Judah is saying here is he's just emphasizing these guys do not have the Spirit. They do not belong to Jesus. If you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. It's none of this business about two levels of Christians where you have you know, second-rate Christians that don't have the Spirit, and then you've got top-rate Christians on top of that who do have the Spirit. No, that's, that's not right. Anyone who is a genuine believer has the Holy Spirit. And therefore, these false teachers do not have the Spirit because they're not genuine believers. And because they don't have the Spirit, their false doctrine is going to divide people from the true church. It's going to create a wall and a barrier and it's going to kill them. Got to watch this. And so this is sort of Jude's brief description of the people that the apostles predicted were going to come in the last days. Now, do we have people like this today? Can we, can we point to people? Yeah, certainly probably could. I'm not going to name anybody. All right, but I will tell you a brief story that's kind of funny. Um, I was, I've told the youth group this story. They loved it, so I'll share it with you. Um, there was this one time... I was back in Minnesota staying at, at Jordan's parents' house, and uh, I was just sitting on the couch reading a book, 
And suddenly, uh, her little, Jordan's little sister comes running through the door and says, Hey, Levi, we brought you something. And they'd been out getting groceries at Walmart. And I said, okay, you know, brought me a bag of Cheetos or something. It sounds good, right? And then this, uh, this man walks in from Kenya. And I'm like, didn't recognize him. I'm like, who's this guy? And he says, hi, I'm so-and-so. Nice to meet you. I'd like to tell you about the mother God. And so we sat down at the kitchen table and had a three-hour conversation about the father God and the mother God from Scripture. Apparently, he could prove these claims from Scripture that there's a father God and a mother God. And he said, he told me, if you don't believe in the mother God as well as the father God in the Bible, then you're not saved. Now talk about divisions. You talk about false teaching and divisions. And just FYI, some of the exegesis he did was some of the textbook violation exegesis. I've never seen such bad uh, scriptural referencing before. But anyway, the point is, he was a false teacher coming in to try to divide me from the true church. He's exactly what Jude is talking about here. That's exactly what the apostles and the prophets predicted is going to come in the last days. And that's what Jude is warning his readers about in this whole epistle. So that's the first point, predictions of the ungodly people. Secondly, verse 20, Jude shifts the discussion. He's not going to talk about the false teachers anymore. Now he's going to focus on his recipients and his readers in the first century by extension to us. So here we have a direct word to us. But you, beloved, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, if you are paying attention and thinking carefully about what I just read, you ought to raise your theological eyebrows. And what I mean by that is this. Think about verse 21, where Jude says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. What's he saying there? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Especially, if you flip over, you can do this, flip over to verse 1 of Jude. You may not even have to turn the page. Verse 1 of Jude, where Jude is introducing the recipients, you remember that I preached on this back in August. Verse 1 says, uh, second part, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now notice here that verb, kept for Jesus Christ, that phrase there. The verb kept is in the passive voice. I don't know how much y'all know about grammar, Right, but I'll tell you, whether you're, whether you're doing this in English or Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or Latin or whatever other language you want to throw out there, if a verb is in the passive voice, that means that the subject is not doing the action. All right? The subject is not doing the action. So when we come to verse 2 here, the subject of the verb kept is Jude's recipients. That is, they are kept for Jesus Christ. And so what it's saying there is that Jude's recipients are not the ones doing the keeping because the verb is passive. They are kept by someone or something else. And commentators universally agree here that this is what's called a divine passive. And what that means is that God is the one doing the action of the verb. So what does this mean then? To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ by God. God is doing the keeping in verse 1. Now, if you 
Come back over now to verse 21. If God is doing the keeping in verse 1, why is it in verse 21 that Jude commands us to keep ourselves? You see now why you should raise your theological eyebrows if you haven't already? Now, this is a significant question. And you can see why many people have come to a text like this and have tried to say, Ah, see, verse 21 says you have to keep yourself in God's love. God doesn't preserve you. There's no notion of perseverance in the scriptures. No, this is a command that you need to keep yourself in God's God's love. You need to be faithful. It's all on you. God's waiting in heaven to see what you do. He's just watching, commanding you to keep yourself in the love of God. And I think, I think to make that kind of an observation from this text is first of all to ignore verse 1, but secondly, it is to completely misunderstand the covenant of grace. It is to completely misunderstand the covenant of grace. Because you see, and we talked about this in Sunday school. So for those of you who are in Sunday school, you've got a leg up on everyone else for knowing what we're going to talk about here. But in terms of covenant, in terms of the understanding how the Bible is structured, okay, theologians have seen two primary covenants between God and man in the scriptures. All right? The first one, theologians call the covenant of works. And the covenant of works was established with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the covenant of works stipulated that Adam and Eve were required to obey God. They could not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they had to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those were the commands. And if Adam and Eve fulfilled those commands, eternal life was promised to them. But if they failed to fulfill the commands, then eternal death was promised to them. The blessings and the curses upon fulfillment of the conditions. And so the covenant of works then had conditions, and Adam and Eve were left to themselves to fulfill them. This is what Augustine talks about when he writes on this subject, when he says that Adam and Eve were created with the ability to sin or with the ability not to sin. And it was up to their will to decide that. Now, that's the covenant of works, and we all know, we all know the story from Genesis, right? Adam and Eve didn't fulfill the covenant of works. They failed and reaped upon themselves and all their posterity the penalty of breaking the covenant of works, which is eternal death for all of us. That's what we get because they represented, Adam represented us. Now, that's the covenant of works, but that's not the end of the story because there's a second covenant, and that's the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, God promises a Messiah who's going to come and he's going to save the people from their sins. And we see this developed all throughout the rest of Scripture. But here's the deal. In the covenant of grace, it is very different from the covenant of works in this. That in the covenant of works, the conditions of the covenant had to be met by man. Adam and Eve had to do it. They had to obey. But in the covenant of grace... God is the one who fulfills the conditions, not us. The covenant of grace has conditions. It requires faithfulness. It requires obedience. But the covenant of grace is grace because God fulfills the conditions for us. That's why it's called the covenant of grace. Because we don't do anything of ourselves. It is God who does it. That's why we say salvation is by grace alone. And so God fulfills the conditions. Now, in Scripture, there are legitimate commands given to us under the covenant of grace. 
As R.C. Sproul says, and I love when he says this, God does not invite us to believe in Jesus. God commands us to believe in Jesus. It is a divine command. It is in the imperative. We are commanded to believe in Jesus. We are commanded to be holy. We are commanded to obey God. But we can't do it. Because we're, we're totally depraved. We can't do it. And so God fulfills those conditions through the work of the Messiah. That's the whole point of the covenant of grace. The commands are legitimate. We, we really do need to obey. We really do need to have faith. But God is the one who does these things in us. We get no credit. God does. He fulfills the conditions. Okay, now where am I going with all this? Well, let's get back to Jude here. When Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, that is a legitimate command. It is a legitimate condition of the covenant of grace. We do need to be faithful to God our whole lives. We don't inherit eternal life if we're not faithful our whole lives. But here's the problem. We're not the ones who fulfill that command. God is the one who fulfills that command. He is the one who works in us the preservation. He is the one who preserves us in the faith unto everlasting life. God is the one who does it, not us. The command is legitimate. The command to believe in Christ is legitimate. But we can't do that. God does it in us. The command to persevere is legitimate. But we can't do it. So God does it in us. Adam said this in a a really great way this morning in the message, and I forgot your exact wording, but I sort of tried to paraphrase it a little bit, if that's all right. He said, speaking to y'all, he said, you are not secure because you are strong. As we are not secure in our salvation, we don't have assurance in our salvation because of our strength of mustering up perseverance in ourselves. Rather, you are secure because a strong, mighty God is holding you. Because God is the one doing it. That's why we have assurance. That's how we can be secure in our salvation. God is doing it. And so Jude's command here, Jude's warning here is legitimate. He's saying, we do need to keep ourselves in the love of God. But as we do that, we must always and in every way recognize that it is God who's doing that in us. We get no credit. God is preserving us. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, right before that keep yourselves, we're going to backtrack just a little bit. Jude says that the means of how we do this. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? This is at the beginning of verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves. So he's outlining two means by which we keep ourselves from a human perspective. There are two ways. Firstly, we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Now, exactly what Jude means by this, I think, might be just a little bit uh, ambiguous, but I'm willing to take an educated guess here, and I think the way that we build ourselves up in faith, that is, the way we increase our faith in Christ and make it stronger and make it more, more sure in our own minds, is by heeding the word of Christ, namely the word, the Bible. So by building ourselves up in our most holy faith, which I think what Jude means there is we need to study God's word. We need to be in God's word because that's what's going to build up our faith. But secondly, he says, we need to pray in the Holy Spirit. So you can see Jude is giving us two means by which we keep ourselves in the love of God. 
studying the Word of God, and praying in the Spirit. Now, I, I'm just going to be honest here. I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to study the Word of God. I love my daily devotions. I love my classes where I get to study the Word. I love studying the Word as I prepare a Sunday school session or something, or as I prepare a sermon like this. But I'll be honest, I have a harder time praying than I do studying the Word. And I don't know if maybe some of you share that, or maybe some of you are backwards. Maybe you have an easier time praying than studying the Word. In any case, Jude is holding both of these up, and we all need to heed this. If we want to keep ourselves in the love of God, if we want God to preserve us, then we need to be drawn to the Word and drawn to Him in prayer. That's what Jude is saying. That's the means by which we do this. And so that's his call to persevere. That is his call to us, a legitimate command to persevere, but always and in every way knowing that ultimately God is sovereignly the one doing it. Okay? So that's his call to persevere. And then thirdly, he gives us a call to evangelism in verse 22. Here in verse 22 he says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, what Judah's doing here is he's giving us three different kinds of people to whom we can evangelize. Three different kinds of people. And he, he essentially gives us three brief strategies for how to evangelize different kinds of people. Now, how this fits into his argument, we'll talk about in just a second. But here are the three, the three ways, or the three kinds of people. And have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 22. That's the first category, the doubters. These are people who tend to, to not be so quick to embrace new ideas. They're people who question things, who carefully think things through. They're not going to jump into it. And so Jude advises here that you know, the way we, we evangelize doubters, or the way that we teach doubters, is not by shoving the gospel down their throat or you know, trying to do it quickly. But rather, we need to do it with mercy. And by mercy here, he's, he means basically patience and long-suffering. We're not quick to do it, but we need to discern a doubter and say, hey, we need to do this carefully and gently, not violently. So that's his first category, the doubters. Secondly, verse 23, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So there he's got violent language, quick language. Snatch is a strong English word there. It's a good translation. Snatching them out of the fire. So while you've got the doubters on the one hand who really need like, who need like very, uh, very specific patience and long-suffering and care in order to evangelize them and teach them. On the other hand, you've got people over here that need to hear Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The fire and brimstone kind of message. The message that says, you need to repent now. A message that conveys urgency. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is pretty, pretty abrupt. That's a strategy for some people. And, and as we evangelize and as we teach, we need to think about which category people are falling into. You've got the doubters on the one extreme, and you've got the people that we need to snatch on the, on the other extreme. And then his third category here is the second half of verse 23. To others... Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
that phrase, hating the garment stained by the flesh, is um, you know, sort of a poetic way that Jude says, uh, those who have been formed and molded by false teaching. And essentially what he means is those whose intellectual garments have been polluted by a bad worldview or by bad teaching. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So in other words, this third category of people is not necessarily the natural doubters who are more careful, and it's not necessarily the ones who, are, who need more urgent attention, but it's people who have been thoroughly and consistently educated in a wrong worldview. And they're going to be sometimes the hardest people to bring the gospel to because you have to deconstruct a lot of their presuppositions and a lot of their troubles, a lot of their troubling views. And Jude prescribes for this particular kind of people that we show them mercy with fear, meaning that we're patient, but yet we are fearful. Not fearful as in afraid or scared of them, but fearful as in we show reverence and, and um, respect. Reverence and respect. Respect for their views and, and carefulness as we seek to teach them the things of God. Now, that's a quick run-through of the three kinds of people that Jude brings here. But you may be thinking as, as we're going through this, like, what on earth does this have to do with Jude's point? Why is he talking about perseverance and all of a sudden he moves to evangelism? Well, I think it's because, it's because evangelism and teaching has a strong effect on our strength of our faith and on our perseverance. You know, just for example, as I teach the Sunday school here, or as I preach here, or as I do the various things that I do here, particularly in the realm of teaching, I got to tell you, it's one of the highlights of my time here in Jackson is to be able to do this. I love it. I bet you can't tell that I love it. But here's the thing. I don't know how much y'all are learning in, say, our Sunday school class or in these sermons, but I can tell you, I'm learning the most. Right, and I'll bet a lot of money on that if I were a betting man. I learned the most in teaching. And what I have found is that in teaching the gospel to people, in teaching the scriptures to people, it has had a profound impact on the strength of my faith and in my assurance of salvation as I persevere to the end. And I think Jude here, perhaps maybe I'm reading into it and I'm open to objection, but I think maybe Jude has that in mind here. That he's saying, listen... Persevere. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And a means of doing that is to go out and tell people about the gospel. Go out and tell all the kinds of people, the doubters, the people who need urgent care, anything. Tell them about it. It's going to strengthen your faith. It's going to help you along in this life. You're going to grow in your knowledge and wisdom of God. And so there we have Jude's concluding points. He, predi- he, he explains that they need to remember the predictions of the apostles. He calls them to perseverance and he calls them to evangelism as a kind of means of, of strengthening perseverance. And we come finally now to verses 24 and 25, which didn't make my three points because it's mostly my conclusion. Jude here in verses 24 and 25 concludes his epistle and he concludes it wonderfully. And I want to just go through this here quickly as we finish up the book of Jude. He says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. There's that word keep. You notice that? To him who has the power. To him who is the one with the power to keep you from stumbling. 
Here we have what's called a chiasm in literature. Right? It's where you have the beginning, where you have the beginning of a work of literature start some way with a statement, and then at the very end it says the same thing. You notice in, in verse 1, God does the keeping. Verse 20, 21, we, keep, we do the keeping. Verse 24, God does the keeping. See, that is sort of sandwiched there. Jude backing up his point. God is the one who is preserving us. He's the one fulfilling the conditions of the covenant. Now to him who has the power to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Notice what he's doing here as he finishes this epistle, as he finishes this warning to his recipients to watch out for the false teaching and to hold firm to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He ends here with a firm statement of the gospel. That God preserves us and God presents us blameless before his glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a Christological ending. It's an ending on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God is only able to present us blameless before him. We are only able to be presented blameless before him because of the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. His dying on the cross to pay for our sin and his perfect righteousness that he merited in his perfect life transferred to us. That is how we can be declared righteous and just and blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And it's not like this being presented blameless is something that's in question here. Now Jude says, God has the power to do this and he's going to do it. He's going to keep you. We need our God because he fulfills the conditions and we couldn't do it. We need our God to protect us from the false teachers that Jude warns about. We need our God to protect us from the devil in our own flesh even. We need our God to preserve us and praise God that he does exactly that. That he is the one who keeps us for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are the keeper. Lord, we thank you that in your word, you're honest with us and you tell us the conditions of your covenant. You tell us we need to believe in Jesus. You tell us we need to obey. You tell us we need to be faithful. You tell us we need to keep ourselves in your love. But Lord, we thank you that even though we can't do that, that you have done it for us. And you've done it by sending your one and only son to die the death we deserved and to give us the righteousness that we don't deserve. Oh Lord, grant to us the joy of your gospel and the joy that we are preserved in it unto everlasting life. Lord, we thank you for that and we pray that you would convince us more and more each day as we study your word of how much we need you. Lord, we thank you in your holy and precious name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Our closing hymn tonight is number 674, I Need Thee Every Hour.
number 674. Please stand.